Hi, Dave. Hi, how are you? Great, 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 great. We're recording this Thursday. It's coming out Friday. Mm-hmm. The fuck knows what will happen by then. We know nothing. We know nothing. In the next few minutes, we could get a push notification um, that could really say anything. Um, yeah. What are you? Your- are you just consuming news all day, or what? What are you? I, how are you handling this? I've lo- I've been very lucky to have had a busy week in other ways. So okay. like two, Monday and Tuesday of this week, I was actually really, really like a couple things were coming to a head. And so I had like stuff to do and I couldn't just spiral. Um, starting Tuesday night, the spiral began. Wednesday and Thursday have been a little bit less busy. So I have, I have time to just scroll Twitter and slowly lose my mind. Um, I will say this. Um, I achieved a, a milestone on Tuesday night. Um, I rage barfed. What? Like for the first time. Yeah, I know. Fully woke up in the middle of the night, um, stressed out and angry, and I barfed. I've ne- that's never happened to me oh, oh in my life. Oh, God. Did you yeah. make it out? Wild. Did you make it to the bathroom? Um, I did. Well, I didn't make – I didn't go to I – I was like, I think I'm going to be sick. And I went and I like just sat on the couch for oh, a minute. God. And I was like, breathe. Just breathe. And then I was like, well, nope, doesn't matter. And then I, I ran to the kitchen and, and hit the, uh, the, the kitchen trash. Oh, Wow. Oh, right. But like nanoseconds to spare. Um, That was that was wild. That was not a thing I was expecting. (laughs) Yeah, that's that's a new low. Yeah, I've never experienced that. I'm sure I'll be rage barfing tonight. uh, Or you could be joy barfing. It could be it really could be any any kind of bar. But you you are going to vomit. So be prepared for that. Um, Yeah, it's uh, it's a crazy, you know, it's a it's a crazy, disappointing um, fucking week. Oh God! Uh, um, I mean, it's the it is the perfect week for the perfect guest. I will say, oh my that. God, I, I do yes. think that uh, Stephen Beresford uh, is, you know, just what the doctor ordered. Yeah, yeah. As a matter of fact, yeah. I mean, he is. Um, there's a moment in this that that I that I actually clipped and shared with my with my little writing class in our in our final class. He says something in uh, in this interview that you will hear about. His process of becoming a writer. Now, Stephen Beresford, if you're not familiar with him, uh, wrote the screenplay for the movie Pride, which is fantastic if you haven't seen yep. it. Um, he has written numerous plays. He did uh, The Last of the Housemans. He did a um, a stage adaptation of Ingmar Bergman's Fanny and Alexander. Um, he most recently did a wrote a one man show that our that our friend Andrew Scott performed at the Old Vic that you could live stream called Three Kings, which I hope becomes available in some format because it was so beautiful. Yes, um, he's just a brilliant writer and one of my favorite people, a good friend and, and someone who I just really love and admire. And his what he had to say about his process of becoming a writer was really inspiring because um, I personally consider him one of the most talented people I've ever met in my life. And he was, you know, filled with self-doubt at the beginning of his career, as most young writers are. And it's nice to um, it's nice to hear somebody so accomplished uh, express that. Yep. And it's and nice to hear it uh, in a British accent. It's a nice gorgeous to, British accent. to see it on a hand, handsome face. It's yeah. just he goes down real easy. You know what I mean? He's great. He's just what you need. He's just what you need. We, we should get directly into him. However, a couple things. Um, first of all, we're going we're gonna to open our Instagram up to questions. Sometimes we oh, like yeah. to do those little, little questions, little Q&As. Um, check us out on Instagram at homophiliapod. 
If you have burning questions, anything you've been dying to know about us or any of our guests, any behind the scenes filth and gossip, yeah. um, we're, we're ready to spill it all. That's not true. But you can ask questions. We'll spill yeah, we'll some stuff. It's, and it's going to be anonymous, uh, yeah. perfectly safe and sound. And you don't perfectly have to expose yourself. You can just try to get us to expose ourselves. Right, right. At HomophiliaPod on IG. Also, five-star review, Matt. Oh, another one has come in. Oh, my God. I can't believe it. Uh, Of course, we are openly soliciting them and, frankly, demanding them from you week after week. Uh, But this one has come in from uh, a friend by the name of Frosty Knoll. Frosty Knoll. Frosty Knoll. Sure. Great. Superb. That's the headline. Look forward to having Matt and Dave in my ears every week. Haven't missed an episode yet. Frosty Knoll. You'll start refreshing. Yeah. You know, this is not the one you want to miss. This is not one you want to miss at all. Thank you so much, Frosty Noel. We truly do appreciate it. Thank you for offering those reviews. They really do help get the word out to new listeners. Um, Without any further ado, let us leave our absolute grease fire of a country and jet over to England. We don't need to know how they're doing right now. It doesn't matter. It's not important. All we need is, yes, Stephen Beresford himself. Folks, we are back with the one and only Stephen Beresford. Finally. Uh, Hello, queer America. Oh, it, we're global, Stephen Beresford. You're, that, never, yeah, that was a very, that was a very, um, uh, short-sighted and inward-looking remark. Yeah, hello, you should have said world. hello, hello, queer America, and hello to two queer people in London and two queer people <laughs> in New Zealand. Yeah, we got a, I'm sure we have All a Canadian. That'll be a Norwegian. Um, you are you are at a beautiful dusk moment in yeah. uh, London. It is pretty. Uh, it's a very nice time of the year here for three weeks, approximately. We have beautiful uh, autumnal weather. And everything's wonderful. And then it gets really, really miserable. And you were just saying that you, you have not left London since the pandemic yeah. started. So is what, what has a day in your life been like? Walk us through a normal Stephen Beresford schedule. <clears throat> well, when it, so you, you mean lockdown. You mean like, so how it's yes, changed. Yes, yes. Yeah. Uh, well, it, it did it change really. Um, before, to begin with, like a lot of people, I think, I really enjoyed it. I really, really enjoyed it. Um, and it took me a while to work out why I liked it so much. And I realized that from that the things that make you a writer or an artist of any kind, really, the two core ingredients are boredom and isolation. And to suddenly have those back, like, like you know, old guests returning into your life was amazing. And I think it made me more productive. But I did, I mean, I did everything wrong because what we did was we just ate. I just ate and drank. I was drunk all the time, yeah. really through Mar- March, through, uh, through May, early May. I stopped. I do stuff. wish we'd interviewed you then. That would have been a lot of fun. And I was big because I, food was a big thing. Uh, yeah, I just ate and drank. Yeah. And, and now you've cut back? And I've cut back now because it couldn't go on. I mean, it was really out of control. Yeah, I mean, I was really, oh, you have no idea. Because there's there's, there are all these restaurants in London. That in, I don't know if this is the same thing that's happened in in LA or, or anywhere else, but there are these amazing restaurants in London, which in order to stay open, started to do delivery services. Um, 
And, you know, if you want to support your local, your favorite restaurant, you spend money with them. And there's a very famous restaurant in London called Spring, um, which is uh, this, um, it's, it's really, it's really well, it's in, it's in Somerset House. It's a really stunning food. And they have like a farm and stuff. So they were making, they were making all this produce like jam and cake and bread. And you could get a spring delivery. So we got a spring delivery every week. And like two big sourdough loaves, mm. two cakes. I'm talking about that kind of, you know, amazing food. So I just wow. ate and ate. I put on, I'll tell you what I put on if you want to know. I put on eight <laughs> kilos. I don't Which know what is. that is, in pounds. I don't know. You're going to have to convert that Dave? yourself. I'm going to do that. I'm going to do that right now. I'm oh, going to get on a little, uh, okay, kilos, two pounds. I'm going to say 15. Yeah, that sounds 15. right. 15. Yeah. And then how, how, how 17.6. 17.6. Oh. Yeah. And, uh, and you are a lean gentleman. So uh, that, that yeah. 17.6, that's not nothing. And how did you no. shed oh. it? Because you clearly well, have. Yeah. Um, well, I t- have a trainer and he, t- he said, we're going to use this bulk. It was clever. Uh-huh. Right? He said, you've got more lifting power when you're bigger. So we did more lifting. We lifted a lot. That's how we got through it. Mostly on Zoom. So what, where, what and where are you lifting? I lift, I was benching. I can't believe I'm having this conversation. I sound like a jock and I really do not want the <laughs> listeners, queer listeners of the world to run away with that idea. But uh, I'm, it's all in kilos, you see. This is the thing. It's not going to mean anything. Right. Except right. for the two no, I don't, I, in Norway who are listening. I didn't mean amounts, like but now I am curious. Yeah. Say again, what is that? I, I, I didn't mean like oh, how many pounds can you lift? Although now okay. I'm curious. I just mean like, <laughs> is it household objects? Do you have weights in oh, the home? Oh, I see. No, I have weights in the home. Yeah, we have weights yeah. in the home. But now uh-huh. how much do you lift? So now, well, I can squat 100 kilos. Okay. Uh, so that's can, around 200 pounds, it seems like, based on the last yeah, kilo sure. conversation. Like yeah. Yeah. Great. Yeah. Wow. That's my one rep max, though. Okay. That's the one rep max. I can only do it once. You know your one rep down. max. You are a jock, Stephen. I am a jock. <laughs> and when I've done it, I have to lie down and waft myself with a volume of queer poetry. But I <laughs> can do it. I can do it. Yeah. So it is... We are speaking on a Monday, and it is Martini Monday, from what I understand. Yeah, that's right. We always have Martini Monday. I think that's it's very a great. Smart. Yeah, thank you. It's um, it, we started it actually before lockdown, but now we really have embraced it. I mean, really, because yeah. Monday's so awful, isn't it? And the thing that on Mondays that we have is in this country often. I mean, it's not always on, but University Challenge, uh-huh. which is a fiendishly difficult university quiz show impossible questions mm. like you know about early early saxon kings and and uh, chemistry formulas and things like that i mean they're unbelievable it's posted by jeremy paxman so you have martini money you have a few martinis and you try and answer questions that's pretty much the ritual of and, and how do you oh. normally do uh, at the questions uh, not so well sometimes you know off, off and on sometimes you can be freakishly lucky uh so, you know, I, I can't possibly, with any decency as an Englishman, I can't possibly say that I do well at it. So I have to right. sort of fudge the answer. Of course. Speaking of early Saxon kings, yes, I sit here very close to a slim volume uh, ah. purchased for me by you yeah. of uh, kings and queens. We were walking yeah. in London some years ago and I said to you, yeah. what I need is a children's book. To say yeah. to tell me who the kings and queens were, you not only went and bought me one, you annotated it to let me know which ones were queer. 
Uh, that is, so did I got, really do that? You really did do that. Yeah. Um, Ed, Edward V, question mark. Um, <laughs> oh, uh, Henry VI, big old G. Yeah. Right yeah, there definitely. and circled. Yeah. 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 So definitely. I've learned so much from you. Yeah. Queen Anne, lesbian. Uh-huh. Uh, I've made famous in um, The Favourite, Olivia right. Coleman. Oh, sure. Right. Her, her lesbian majesty. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, yeah. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yes, I've forgotten about that. Can I ask, I, I think we talked about this before, but I'm forgetting to tell the people how you two became friends. Oh, yeah. I believe we met through a friend of the show, John Butler. That's right. Yeah, right? Yeah. We first met on a hike. We did meet on a hike. We yeah, are in, in L.A.? Yeah. Yeah. We met in a, in a hike in Griffith Park. Yeah. And, uh, and hit it off immediately. Yeah. Wow. As we, as the we strolled. History. The rest. Beautiful story. Stephen, yeah. tell us about your living situation. It's a fascinating one. Okay. Well, I live with very dear friends um, who I love very much, but who are married to each other. Mm-hmm. And we live in um, an extraordinary building. It's a converted school, 19th century school. Um, so there's an awful lot of space. So it's kind of living together, but without any of the problems, the concomitant issues of living together, because we have, you know, boundless space, really. Um, but uh, I've lived here now for about five years. And I, it's interesting because my friends in LA, and I tell them this is where I live, I live with these friends. and They're sort of on the top floor and I'm on this floor. And then we're all, we share the other floor. And my friends in LA will introduce me as that's perfectly normal. I've often been introduced in LA, people saying, this is Stephen and he lives in a non-sexual throuple, mm-hmm. um, which, you know, it's good. That works. That's true. That's what it is. Um, but we had, uh, our cat died quite a long time ago. And um, when the cat died, uh, I had to venture, we're sort of slightly, we're in a little, it's like, almost like a little castle in the middle of the street, this big school. And um, our cat had various, you know how cats have different owners? Like they have you, but they also have like five houses they go to. You know what they're like? They're promiscuous cats. They're disgusting. And this cat, and, and this cat um, Pushkin, who's called, uh, had another home that he used to go and get fed in. Anyway, he went missing for like a week. And we ended up having a, a pet detective. This story's getting too long, but I'm just going to... We had a pet detective who came to find him and came with a dog that was trained to find cats. And this guy went, it cost a fortune. He went all around the area and he came back. Uh, he'd sort of, the dog had sniffed Pushkin's blanket and then came back and he said, the dog is alive. Oh, the cat is alive. The cat is alive. I don't know where he's trapped, but he is alive. And, he, and we said, thank you, thank you. Everyone's in tears. Minutes later, the phone rings. And one of the neighbors calls and says, we found the cat, it's dead. So, I mean, oh, he God. really was not worth the money. But anyway, the cat was dead and he'd gone to this other family that he used to get fed by. And they found him in an English word now, in the ginnel. It's the side return of the house on terraced house. So he was sort of at the side of the house. And um, so uh, we got this call and they said, uh, this, this lady said, I found the cat. And everyone was terribly upset. My cat's my friend, he was terribly upset. Everyone was crying. So I said, I'll go and get the cat. I grew up in the country. I can handle dead animals. So I went to get the cat with a box. And I knocked on the door and the, the woman and the, this, the woman answered the door and uh, she was in floods of tears, which slightly surprised me because I, I don't know, I didn't expect her grief to be so apparent. 
And she said, I'm so upset about the cat. I said, it's okay, don't worry, just tell me where he is. And she said, yes, but I spoke to your wife and she was in so tears and it's made me more upset. And I thought, oh, well, I can't really go into all this now. But I said, well, I said, if she's not actually my wife, she said, oh, I'm so sorry, your partner. And I said, no, no, um, uh, she is married, but to someone else and we all live together. And she said, oh, I think all that sort of thing is marvellous. <laughs> <laughs> and then, uh, then I took away the dead cat. So now everyone in our street really thinks we live in a sexual problem. Oh, but it is actually wow. not sexual. Oh, and it's a beautiful estate. As you yeah. said, you do have so much space in a beautiful yeah. area of London. Yeah, yeah, very lucky. Very lucky. Yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a beautiful situation. We have not even, I can't believe we've gotten this far without asking what you've been watching, reading, listening to, consuming yes. uh, in isolation. Yeah. I mean, well, you've been busy. I mean, yeah, uh, yeah, that's true. I always, what, the trouble with me about this, these, these kinds of questions is, but all my life, really, I've never been very uh, good on, on I've, my tastes have always been quite obscure. So often yeah. when I answer these kinds of questions, people go, what the fuck, what? What are you doing? So it's quite difficult, really. I've, read, I've fallen back on a lot of old favourites. Okay. Uh, I think a lot of people have done that for comfort. Uh, Started to read Dickens again. I'm reading Bleak House. Must be the third time. Um, I've been watching now. There's a TV show called Fowda. Do you know this? Yes, this was just recommended to me. But right. I it's, it. a, it's Israeli. The first thing, so basically I spent a lot of time in the Middle East. So I've been watching, first of all, I watched this a Swedish show, um, which is called uh, Caliphate which is all about ISIS. Mm-hmm. That's amazing. If you can get that, I think that's on Netflix. Might be on Amazon. And then we graduated from Caliphate to Fauda, which is a Hebrew word, which means chaos. And that's what they shout when the operations go wrong. Fauda, Fauda. Uh, it's extremely violent. Um, it's, um, it's supposed to tell the story from both sides, which I don't think it quite does. But... Um, it's pretty amazing. And it's three seasons. And we're on season three. And you're saying we, so you and you and the couple are... We all watch together. ...shows together. So you are in a throuple. We're in a throuple. intensive purposes. Absolutely. In fact, we've bought a penguin. We've sponsored a penguin in the Falkland Islands uh, and called it Thrupple. <laughs> it's actually terribly expensive, you know, to... to I bet uh, it is. To sponsor a penguin. I, I, I don't know if it's going to private school or what they're doing. It's incredibly expensive. Every year we go, what? But we get these little pictures of trouble. He's a bit of a shit, actually, it turns out. We get, really? We get sl- slightly snotty emails, honestly, saying, Thrupple has been stealing eggs again. And <laughs> it's that's quite alarming. Like a sort of school report. Yeah. Um, but, but so now, you, I mean, you really, in... My time in at, at the estate, usually one or both, uh, Kaz um, or her husband are gone. Philip, yeah, yeah. Philip, um, yeah. I've actually never met Philip. So now you guys are really. It is a great yeah, deal. It's a real trouble. Has that yeah. affected the relationship? We love it. Okay. It's really. It's the best. You know, it's the most successful relationship I've ever been. <laughs> mm-hmm. That isn't true. That is not true. That's just a lie. Um, <laughs> But uh, it's wonderful. I mean, we, we, we are always, we're usually all here, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Um, 
usually. Um, and, you know, we've got our separate things and bits to do. And then at the end of the day, we all get together. At six o'clock, we have cocktails and bitings, as we call it. Bitings. So a few little nibbles and we have a cocktail. Not every night. Because, I mean, during lockdown, to the beginning of lockdown, every night it was cocktails and bitings. And then like in May, I started to think, this is out of control. Yeah. I mean, I was like Dorothy Parker shuffling around the house so then then that was brought to an end and so now uh, uh every other night cocktails and bitings but there's always biting six o'clock gotta um, have bitings gotta have them gotta have them you gotta have them uh, um, we even have a little uh in out board uh at the front door so you you slide the thing to say you're in or you're out and if oh, you come home and everyone's out that's i'm always that's i hate that so i'm always delighted when they're all here I love it. So di- how did you dial it back? Well, uh, oh, I mean, just force of will, really. Force of will. Pure yeah, force I of just will. Said, this has got to stop. It's the I mean, it was really, it was ridiculous. It was totally ridiculous. Yeah. And it was that yeah. interesting. I mean, it was liberating. In a way, it was wonderful because for the first time, everything stopped. The hubbub stopped. And, you know, I didn't buy anything. And, you know, that was interesting. I quite liked that. And I started, you know, experimenting with different things to wear as masks, like silk scarves. And at one point, uh, somebody said to me, you know, that's, you're getting a bit, that's a bit, what are you wearing? I was getting a bit Little Edie from Grey Gardens. <laughs> and I was kind of drifting about in, it just doesn't take much. It's a very short push for me to be, <laughs> to be one of the Beals. But um, yeah, and I, I, so I sort of quite enjoyed that, that liberation from the pressure of, having to look good. Right. But in the end, I thought, no, this has got to stop. Because what if they suddenly lifted it? They suddenly lifted the lockdown. Right. Like, and that can happen. And then where would I be? I'd be obese and wearing a turban. That can't, <laughs> that can't do. You know, I've been really shocked during this time by what my uh, restaurant and bar budget ends up being. Oh. Because like there were a few months where you just couldn't go anywhere. And it was like, yeah. how... How am I ending this month with the same amount of money that I started with? That's never we happened. So, we are so rich. It is incredible when you realize. I mean, you know me, Dave. I mean, I, I mean it's unbelievable. Unbelievable. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Oh, that, that and many other things. But I mean, yeah, particularly the barbell and the restaurants. Just goes to show, doesn't it? It just goes and I, I mean, we've had restaurants are open now. I don't know if they are in LA. They're open here now. Um, so you try and support them, but it's kind of slightly different. Right. Uh, it's like the war. That's what I feel. Because there are all sorts of things happening. So before, you know, it's like they bring the food and it's often not that great. And you look at the menu and there are three things available and two of them are corned beef. And you go, oh, I'll have the corned beef. Thank you. <laughs> and then they slam it, they bring it, and you know, the, the waiter is stressed and everybody. And it's kind of miserable, actually. But like during a war, it's not, it's not good form to complain. So things I would have sent back a hundred times before the lockdown. Now I find myself going, thank you so much. It's so nice mm. to be here. Right. Um, at all that this wine is corked. Yeah. I, um, I have found that you know, some restaurants are open now. So the, the deal in Los Angeles is some restaurants uh, are open, uh, but everything is outside. So they've taken over. If they have parking lots, they've taken over the parking lot. If they have mm, sidewalk okay. in front, they've taken over the sidewalk out front. So every, everything see. is outside. And what I have found is that um, I don't really want to go 
anywhere, except for like the two places where I know there's something I love or I know the owner or yeah. I know I'm going to bump into somebody that I know or whatever. Like it turns out all of my favorite restaurants, all of, all of our go-to places are just like pretty rooms that we liked to sit in. And if there's no room or ambiance or music or whatever, it's yeah. like, I can't think of a thing on that menu that I'm dying to have yeah, or that would be I, better than something I would cook myself. Yeah. I know what you mean. I know what you mean. Yeah. Yeah. They yeah, can't something very, here. There's a real feeling of desperation with the outdoor dining here. You're like, we're doing it. See, we're yeah. in the world. Everything oh, it's is fine. Yeah. It's okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's not great. But it's not What's the great. restaurant situation there now? Well, because they can't really do that here. It's too cold. And I mean, no one's going to tolerate sitting outside. Too. So that you're inside, um, you know, it's uh, the way to wear masks. I'm deaf in one ear. That's the other thing. It's, I can't, I didn't realize how much I lip read until this enough i can't understand anything anybody says oh boy um which actually is a tremendous comfort it's one of the best things that's ever happened to me not be able to understand <laughs> everybody else um so i don't mind that at all um but yeah you know they they um so that most of them are i mean they're, they're opening up i mean smaller ones obviously can't they can't afford to um but the bigger places are but you know i had it i've had the covid so right. i'm quite really? i walk around like you know what nothing can happen to me um, so yeah. And, and what's your COVID how, story? yeah. How bad were you? Not bad. Not bad at all. Yeah. It was pretty, pretty average. In fact, I didn't think I had it. Um, and in fact, my doctor told me I didn't have it. Um, because, uh, he said I had all the wrong symptoms and then, um, Kaz, my friend here, she, she got it and then she was taken into hospital briefly. And then, um, uh, she said, oh, I, I, she said to the doctor, I need to, because um, at the time I had this, what my doctor had said was a chest infection. And she said, oh, I'm, I'm worried about um, my friend that I live with. He has a chest infection. So should I go back if I've got COVID? If she had her test, should I go back? And the doctors there said, no, he has COVID too. Like you both have COVID. So, and then I was tested and I did. Um, but uh, I didn't really feel it that much. I was tight chested and I was tired. It went lasted for two weeks and then it was over. Uh, this is I still have early in the game, right? Yeah, it was in March. Right. So I was in early COVID. We had a massive party here. Literally on the day, it was the day that Broadway went dark because it was like a theatre fundraiser here. And we call it the COVID party. And it was full of venerable elderly British actresses that you don't want to kill. <laughs> and everybody was hugging and kissing and hat canapes. And would you like another Brandy Alexandra? And, you know, and then, then we all got COVID. Ooh. So I don't yet know actually who are, who are the survivors of that party, but I am one of them. <laughs> Do hope there um, aren't too many casualties. Yes, I hope that you did not kill Dame Helen Mirren. Yeah. Um, how much um, real estate does American politics occupy in your mind in your conversations? Yeah. Uh, I do, uh, early in lockdown, I deleted all news apps. Not that I had many, but so I really don't, it's interesting. I don't really consider myself to be less well-informed. I just think I've silenced a great swirling morass. Um, So it doesn't occupy a great deal. I'm going to be honest with you. Um, I have hopes and fears, obviously, Uh, you know, I love America. As you know, David, both of you, I go go there a lot and I've spent, I spent a great deal of my time in LA. And, and in other parts of the States, and in New York as well. And I love America. And I, I, I happen to believe that um, a, a healthy, functioning America is, is very important for the world. 
Um, so yeah, I, ca- I care about it, but I don't. I, I try to keep out of out of it as much as I can. To yeah. be honest, it's smart. It's yeah. uh, <laughs> awful. It's awful right now. Yeah, uh, every yeah. single second is terrible. It's just terrible. yeah, yeah, yeah. And you've it's got your hands full there as it is. Yeah. yeah, yeah, we have our own problems, you know. Yeah. Um, what is yeah. the current status of Brexit, if I may? Um, we're very self-involved is, over here. I haven't even... Well, it's who knows? I mean, we're Brexiting, but I mean, you can do anything under the guise of a pandemic. I mean, you know, who knows what else is happening? But yeah, apparently, it's, it's so now... I mean, we miss those days when on the news, everything was about Brexit. Right. Nothing is about Brexit now. Everything is about... PPE and tra- tres- test and trace, you know. Right. Nobody talks about anything, you know. Right. It's just not never mentioned. I would like for you, Stephen, to tell us about your experience as the father of a dog. Oh, okay, yeah. Um, I will. And funny you should say that because today is the anniversary of the day he arrived. Is that true? Yeah, yeah. Happy anniversary. anniversary. How many... Was that four years four ago? Four years ago, yeah. Four years ago. And who is uh, he at hotel? His name is Coach. He's a Boston Terrier. So I'm a bit, I am an Americanophile. It's interesting there's no word in the language for that, but, but I've made one. American the only one. Uh, no. Uh, and so I got a Boston Terrier. I love Boston Terriers. And um, he came from, um, this is quite shameful, um, I hope this isn't a judgy queer audience because you should adopt and not shop. But I bought him in Reykjavik and shipped him over. That's the, mm. that's the dirty truth. Did you so meet came, him and, and uh, fall in love with him and have him ordered or was, what happened? It was cyber dating. Ah. So I found some people that bred Boston Terriers and in Reykjavik. And they were in London, but they, had, they do it in Reykjavik. They live in Reykjavik. And they said, I said, is it easy to bring a dog from Iceland to England? And they said, it's the easiest thing in the world, which actually, you know, is, is, a, is a traditional Icelandic saying. It isn't the truth, but it's what wow. they say about everything. So they said, it's easy, it's easy. So I bought the dog. And then he came over from, from Reykjavik in a crate um, when he was a puppy. And he had no papers. He was a literal illegal immigrant. Um, he had no papers. It was a complete mess. I had to call the vet in Reykjavik to get something stamped and faxed to Gatwick Airport Animal Immigration. And the uh, vet was like, you know, because there are 300,000 people in Iceland. You know, it's a tiny country, absolutely tiny. So they're like, and he, so he said, oh, he said, yeah, I didn't have a chance to do that because, you know, I've been so busy and my wife's doing this and we're, 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 uh, we're just having our loft done. And I was getting, having this, I'm standing in Gatwick going, okay, well, never mind, if you could just do it now. So anyway, he did it. And the dog was finally released uh, and brought home. Um, and he's a great dog. He's, um, he's a, he has some, he's, he's got a bit of toxic masculinity. He does. He's a bit of a bully. I'm here to tell you he does. He's a bit of a bully. And he's very picky about people. It's very hard. Dave won him over, but... Um, Works. Wasn't easy. easy. Wasn't easy, Stephen. It was a process. No, I know. I know. He really does. He's very uh, territorial, um, and he attacks puppies. That's his new thing. Oh, coach! And you named him coach, like a true jock. Yeah, because yeah, I'm a jock. Because I'm a jock, 
And because he's a Boston and he's, that's what he's kind of like. And he makes me exercise and he makes me get up early. So he is, you know, and then there's a kind of, you know, Boston-y sort of vibe. But yeah, he's a lot of fun, really. What is the sleeping arrangement with yeah. you and Coach? He, he's crate trained. So he, he sleeps in the air freight crate that he was brought in, the Air Iceland crate that he came in. That's his home little thing he sleeps in. Uh, so he's not on the bed. Mm. I'm very strict. Um, right. yeah. That's fair. Very hard and line. And I, I, I seem to remember something about the name Coach also referring to your desire for him to pull a, a, a nurturer. Yeah, out of out me. Of you. Yeah. But he didn't really, did he? Because all I, literally all I do is try and rein in his, his uh, he's not that bad. He's not that aggressive. He can be very nice. He's just, I, know, I sometimes worry that he's like an avatar of me because he's like, he's finds, he doesn't like many people and he's, you know, feisty. And I think, shit, that's, is it me? Have I made him like this? Like if he'd gone to some nice, Elderly lady, it'd just be a gentle dog. I hope that's not true. We'll never know, of course. But I mean, yeah. He's, it's interesting that the ladies in, in Battersea Park, where I walk the dog. So Battersea Park, the international listeners, is the largest park in London. It's a very beautiful park, and it's on the other side of the road from Chelsea, which is a very uh, well-heeled, expensive neighbourhood. And there are a lot of posh ladies uh, that walk their dogs in the park. And... Uh, when, I, when he was a puppy and he was out of control, they were the people that were my, they were gurus because they're, ter- they're terribly sensible, these ladies. And they've usually got Dachshunds or Border Terriers, Celium Terriers. And I had one lady who said to me, I said, I don't know what I'm going to do with my dog. Uh, he's so aggressive. And she said, well, he's a Boston. He's American. Do you see? American, very aggressive. And she said, mine's French. All he wants to do is fuck. And off she <laughs> went in her headscarf. She was terrific. Oh, God. Um, she was right. She was right. She was right. Yeah. Fucking smoke. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Early in the pandemic, actually, maybe mid pandemic. Dave uh, gave me a a very hot tip that there was an upcoming show uh, that could be viewed through the National Theater from home. Yeah. Yeah. Called Three Kings. Yeah. That was written by Stephen Beresford. Yeah. Um, Can you tell us the the origin story of the the play? Yeah. Uh, It was was the Old Vic Theater, actually, but it was... Oh, um, I'm so sorry. That's okay. No, no, don't worry. Um, just to give them that credit, um, of course. it was, it, it was, uh, um, it was very, it was biographical. It was basically about my father, my late father, um, who was, uh, a bit of an asshole, really, I suppose. <laughs> um, and it's interesting. I mean, some of it was fictionalized, but most of the things that were most outrageous were, were true. Um, and when he died, which was, I'm not even sure how many years ago. Uh, I remember I, I, just before he died, I hadn't spoken to him for four years. And just before he died, my sister called me and said he's dying on this mountain in Spain. So I went out there and I spent a weekend, I mean, a, a night actually, it was in the end, um, before the fighting became too terrible. 
and I came home. And that was the last time I saw him. But I remember at the time thinking, I think I'll probably write about this one day. It took a very long time until I finally did. Um, but, uh, yeah, it all came spilling out. Um, it's, 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 uh, it's, it's so beautiful, and I, I was so moved by it. And I, I also don't speak to my father and did right. make me wonder if I should make one of those trips before it's too late. Um, yeah. but I probably won't, uh, yeah. <laughs> but without giving anything away, really- was the, the, the last trip that as it is depicted in the yeah. play, it, it, is that pretty much how it went for you? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, pretty much. Um, he was, uh, not quite as aggressive as I wrote him in the play. Um, and in the play, he's a bit, he's, he's, he's a fantasist. Uh, um, and that isn't quite right. If anything, my father was kind of more brutally wedded to the truth, really. Um, but yeah, as he was dying, I mean, all the stuff about, I mean, he, for example, he, he was always obsessed with conspiracy theories and he thought that he was going to cure his cancer with soursop fruit, um, which I'd never even heard of. Um, and his, and finding out about his own, own background just completely a mystery to me, really, because I'm half Spanish through him. So I, knowing, understanding that that's a whole family in Spain I've never met, and uh, he doesn't know either, really. All of that stuff um, is, is, uh, is all true. But it's interesting what you say, Matt, because it's one of those things, if you have a parent that's kind of toxic, as indeed mine really was, uh, when you tell people about it, I don't know if you've had the same experience, you tell people the stories and they say, my God, that's absolutely terrible, it's shocking. And you say, well, I haven't spoken to him for four years. And then they say, oh, well, I mean, he is your dad. So there's a kind of weird, you get this like, you get this weird double thing of like, your father's obviously an asshole, um, but he, but you've only got one dad. You go, yeah, but add the two things up. He's an asshole. Yes, yes. Because people who have a good dad cannot imagine, yeah. uh, you know, ever, ever choosing to not speak to them for a long period yeah. of time. yeah. I think that's right. That's right. Yeah. But it does, it's interesting. It makes you think about, it's about the dog. It makes you think about, because I think, well, that's my only, my only uh, uh, example of parenting. <laughs> and this is the way, you know, when you think about how I bring up my dog, I think, you know, Jesus, thank God I didn't have any children myself. And I don't think my father wanted any children. Really, to be fair to him, it was all a terrible mistake. Uh, when I only said that all the time, every single time I ever saw him. But so I know that was the case. But um, he shouldn't have done, really. But anyway, tough. He did too. I'm glad he did. Yeah, yeah, was it difficult to write something that is so painful and personal and, and uh, autobiographical? Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. It was interesting. Um, I didn't expect it to. Uh, it was quite, it came out really, you know, as you would expect. I mean, I knew the story. The story's always the hardest bit with writing and I knew it already. So that was great. I had all that down. Um, it was interesting. I was interested to talk to my parent, my mother and my sister about it. Both of them said, go ahead, before I did it. Um, but both of them said they felt tremendous pain when it was on. Uh, my sister had a very intense physical reaction to it. She was kind of very emotional. She was shaking uh, my mom said the same. She was very, uh, very, very shocking. We all sort of felt like that. But do you know what the weird thing is? It made, funnily enough, it made me feel much more sympathetic towards him. 
Because um, Andrew Scott played him and played him and me and all the other characters and played him with brilliant, as he always does, because he's a genius, empathy and beauty. And and something about the whole experience made made me feel slightly more benevolent towards him, I think. And I suppose that's what art is, really. It's 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 uh, taking a trauma and making it beautiful in some way. Right. And there was there Have was this thought about uh, what added, he. Oh, sorry. Sorry. You go ahead. I, I'm, I think we're on a weird delay. Sorry. I, was there? There was something. Um, uh, something about watching Andrew on a stage, and he is the only person on stage, and you, you as the viewer are the only person in the room. And if you're watching it in America, it's like nine in the morning on a Saturday. Um, that added such a layer of intimacy that mm. obviously I would have preferred to watch it, you know, in London at the old Vic with a packed audience. But yeah. at, at what point did you know and how did you adapt it knowing that this is how it was going to be seen? Oh uh, yeah. It's a good question. Well, I entirely, that was entirely the, the purpose from the beginning. So I thought if you're going to do a play on zoom, which is so the idea was so, the, so it really is, and it's something I've been quite involved with over the whole of lockdown. Is our theatres? You know, London's theatres are one of its extraordinary treasures, and uh, they're all in terrible trouble, obviously. Uh, and so are the um, actors and technicians and front of house staff and people who work in them. So we're trying to find ways to keep these buildings open. Basically, we're just trying to keep the lights on. So that was the purpose of the whole play was to was to keep the Olvik going. Um, and the Olvik is a you know two hundred year old. Uh, extraordinary building, beautiful building, an important theatre. Um, and so uh, I knew it would be on Zoom. So I thought, what can you do on Zoom that you can't do on stage? So that's where I had the idea of the coin trick. So it's the whole play, The Three Kings, uh, is, a, um, uh, is a coin trick, and he's taught it by his father, and then, uh, and then it kind of echoes throughout his life, really. So, yeah, I thought if you can do close-hand magic of a kind, then, then that's a you know that's something you can do on Zoom that you can't do on stage. And did were you, was this something you'd already started writing before quarantine, or did no, you write I it I mean, during the? I'm a really before. slow writer, but I wrote that in yeah, four days. Really, it's really, yeah, yeah, really fast. And then we worked on it, you know, in rehearsals, and you know, in rehearsals, it was it was, um, you know, and those are Matthew and Andrew, you know, we're very close, and Andrew and I are obviously very close, and so we were able to have a very good language for how to make that work. So, uh, yeah, we did that. Um, so it, it had development. Um, but, yeah, it, it came up very, very quick, indeed. Yeah. A splurge. Well, you really started as an actor, correct? Yeah, yeah, I did. Well, I always wrote when I was a kid, mm-hmm. but I kind of had that thing, I think, that people feel, which is that you can't... To be a writer is like, it's like Hemingway or... F. Scott Fitzgerald, I mean, who's a writer? You're not, certainly. Shut up. That's sort of what you, that's the voice in the head. And so I think I felt like it wasn't a thing I could be, really. Um, or I, I, I think partly, when you're young, the distance between your taste and your ability is so painful that it's almost unbearable. For me, that was unbearable. So I could write stuff, but the, 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 the gap between what I wanted to be and what I was was insupportable so being an actor was something I could just do I mean I could do it I could show off um 
I wasn't, I mean, I was all right at it. I did a lot of the stage work, which is why I'm very closely involved with the theatre still. But um, I used to giggle. I was a terrible laugher. I couldn't help it. I'd be halfway through, you know, Troilus and Cressida, and I'd turn to somebody and go, oh, it's ridiculous, darling. I couldn't stop it. I just found the whole thing so funny. I found everything funny. I mean, and I, I used to have to do whole scenes with leading ladies where we'd both be looking past each other's eye lines because I knew if I looked her in the eye, I would just collapse. I was in a production of, of a Noel Coward play and we were in, on tour and we were in somewhere in, uh, on the coast, some dreadful place, Eastbourne, but it wasn't even Eastbourne, um, somewhere on sea. And it was a matinee and uh, it was designed for living. And um, we started giggling about 10 minutes in. And it's a long enough play. And by the end, I simply couldn't say any intelligible dialogue. I could not speak. I just was crying and crying with laughter. Um, so that was one of the problems of being an actor for me. And then I got, then I decided I'd just, you know, after a while, you think I can write, I can, I can do this. The person that got me, actually, in a way, I started to write a bit. Um, I found being an actor, first of all, I was laughing too much. And secondly, all the things that I enjoyed about being an actor, which is basically dressing up and meeting boys, you can do that anyway. I mean, you don't have to, to be in a play to wear a crinoline or a long cloak. You can wear it down the street. So that's okay. So um, uh, I was in a play at the National Theatre uh, with Andy Lincoln, who is the star of, I don't think he still is, but he was, The Walking Dead. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, and he and I were in a play, and we were at drama school together. And we were out, we were out one evening, and he said... Uh, he was at the time in a lot of really successful British TV shows in a show called Teachers and a show called This Life. Um, lots of kind of 90s, you know, gritty, uh, flat share dramas that were very big in Britain at that time. He was in all those, all of them. He was a fantastic star, really. And, and Channel 4 were desperate to keep him. And they said, and they said, what do you want to do? Just tell us what you want to do. Well, and so he told me, we were, well, I hadn't written anything that he'd seen, but he said, we were out, we were drinking um, and having dinner or whatever. And he said, why don't you write me something? And I said, yeah, oh, absolutely, I will do that. Definitely, that is the thing that will happen for sure. And then we went into rehearsals the next day. Uh, I was quite hungover. And he passed me a little envelope under the table. And in the break, I opened the envelope and he'd written me a cheque to pay for the script. And he'd asked somebody what would you give a first-time writer as a, as a fee for script writing? And I always considered that to be a fork in the road. That was a, a moment. Mm. Because if I'd said, I'll write the script, but keep the money, I can't take your money, I would have still have been an amateur writer. And if I had uh, said, you know, if I'd taken the money and been able to deliver the script, I'd still be an amateur. But what happened in that moment was that he, he kind of said, I value it. I believe you can do it. And gave me the money. And I took the money, wrote the script and gave it back to him. And he gave it to Channel 4, first of all, to um, a producer at the time called Jane Fallon, um, who's Ricky Gervais's partner. Um, and they, uh, they optioned the script and then it was commissioned by Channel 4. So then I started writing and then suddenly writing became my thing. But it all came from the fact that he had that faith in me, I think. Well, it did. Um, and he put his money where his mouth is. As Dr. Johnson said, no one but a fool ever wrote 
um, for anything other than money. And that is kind of true, really. So, and yeah. what was what was that show? It was never made. Well, <laughs> it was really interestingly. Uh, it's really interesting because I, I, I worked with a British script editor on it called Liz Lewin, who's now a producer, and she makes um, uh, a show called Derry Girls, which you uh-huh. may or may not know. Yeah. Wonderful show, and she uh, was one of my first script editors. And we tried to make this show, and it was about. Um, uh, uh, actors and musicians, whatever, it was people waiting, being, people being waiters, basically, day jobs, you know. Uh, and it was a lot of sex and, you know, that kind of thing. And basically, it, they kept rejecting it. They kept saying, there's too much sodomy and I don't want to see somebody ejaculate over the counter. Why is everyone so, you know, foul-mouthed? And then girls came out and Liz and I texted each other and, and said, this person, Lena Dunham, has made the show we were trying to make for 15 years. That is, this is the kind of thing we were trying to do. So it's wonderful it happened. It just didn't, that showed it wasn't the thing that made it happen. Right. I want to see people ejaculating over a counter. Yeah, let's see day jobs. It's let's not too late. That's true. In fact, funnily enough, it's, it's it, every, every now and then it rears its head. Somebody says, why did you revisit that? I don't know. Oh, it'll Maybe. come back. Maybe. We're, we're, we're secreting it. We're putting it out into yeah. the world. Okay. Stephen, can you, can you tell us, it, if you don't want to, that's fine. Yeah. Um, the story of you coming out to your mother. Oh, yeah. Okay. Uh, One of my favorites. Well, uh, okay. Well, she, um, they were the last people I told. I was quite early. I was quite an early um, entry into the queer world. Um, I told friends and things when I was about 15, 16. Mm, okay. Um, my sister, she told me, you know, that way they do. Mm. You're gay. And I thought, well, yeah. Um, and, uh, but my parents were the last people to know for not, lots of reasons, really. Um, but I, I, they, I, had, I was about 22, 21, 22. And um, I had a very obviously gay friend uh, called Lee, who had, I had met a few years before, and he'd come and stayed in our house, and my mum loved him, and, you know. And uh, he was openly gay and obviously gay, and I wasn't out to my parents, but I was to other people, which was complicated for Lee, I expect. Anyway, um, I was in a relationship. I got into a relationship with somebody, and, and then it felt ridiculous. You've actually got a real, you know, boyfriend. You've got to start telling your parents. So I went home to Devon, where they lived. And uh, I was, it was extreme, it was much harder than I thought it would be. Um, I guess it's just any way talking to your parents about sex is difficult. But anyway, I, I tried to bring up the subject, and it was quite difficult. And I was standing in the dining room, exactly where I was standing, right by the edge of the table, staring, staring at this patch of mahogany, polished mahogany. And I was, I thought I'd bring up Lee. I thought, well, this is a good way in. So I talked about Lee and my mother knew exactly what was going on precisely and she said um has Lee has he told his parents that he's gay yet so he wasn't out to his parents it's fine uh has Lee told his parents that uh, he's gay yet and I said no and she said well that's ridiculous you know if a child of mine I and mean, she literally you know laid it out on the table so I said <sighs> I took a breath and I said well I am and she said what she's in the kitchen at this point I'm in the dining and I said I am gay 
And then she said, this is a very smart move on her part, I think, now looking back on it. Then she, she said, come in here, I can't hear what you're saying. She was very good. She was like, look into the whites of my eyes, you gay coward. So I went into the kitchen and I said, I am gay. And she said, yes, I thought so. And she carried on whatever she was doing, putting cold ham onto a plate. And I said, um, uh, well, this feels like a bit of an anticlimax, which indeed it did. And uh, she said, well, why? I said, well, I don't know. I, I thought we might talk about it. She said, well, you're the one who's gay. Talk. So I sort of rumbled about a bit and I didn't know what to say. I'm sort of, you know, staring at the cold ham now. And she said, would it help you if I told you that I've been a lesbian? And I said, but you haven't been a lesbian. She said, no, it might break the ice. <laughs> and that was kind of it, really. And she said, will you tell your father or did my stepfather? I said, yeah. She said, right, good. It was a very a real non-event, really. Except the lesbian bit. Oh, I mean, but it's had, also beautiful. Had, yeah, it's quite chic. Yeah, she um, handled it as elegantly. Yeah, it's true. Yeah, she was, they were very cool. I mean, it was never a, an issue of any kind um, with them. Never was at one, in, in, in any respect. Just interesting. Because um, it was a homophobic time, you know. Of course. In the 80s and 90s. Uh, I mean, that by then that would have been the 90s, but... but um, yeah, school and everything. It was all Thatcher's Britain. It wasn't easy. Um, yeah, was what was school like? Well, I went to, it was really strange because I had this weird hybrid life where my, you know, my parents were broke, absolutely dirt poor. My mum worked um, a cleaner. She, was a, she was, did cleaning jobs and looked after holiday cottages. And uh, my stepfather, um, he worked in a boatyard so this town I grew up in, Dartmouth, it's kind of like, to give you an example of what it's like in, in American terms, it's kind of like the Hamptons. It's kind of East Hampton. So it's got big, fancy houses and, and a yacht club, and a royal yacht club as well. And it's got all these moorings and, you know, and then you've got people that go and work and come in and, you know, clean the houses and things. But so we were broke and poor. Um, but my stepfather's family were, were had, from the big house end. Uh, they, were really, they were really posh. So, and he was a kind of Trotskyite hippie. He was a sculptor, and, you know. Uh, and in fact, he, when I came back to him, he told me when he was at university, so in the 70s, he joined the Gay Lib uh, group. Because he was a Marx communist revolutionary, he believed in the liberation of all people. Um, so he used to go to the Gay Lib meetings and go, you know, come on, comrades, and support them, even though he was straight. But the trouble was that the Gay Lib meetings were straight after his rugby practice, so he'd have to go in in his rugby kit. <laughs> Just shooting pheromones all over the room. I mean, can you imagine? So they would have all gone crazy about that. Um, but yeah, he's also 14 years younger than my mother. So that paints a picture for you. Um, but so, yeah, so, so I had this weird mix of, you know, he was from his very posh family, and, but we were broke. So I went to the local school, but most of my friends were from the big house end. Uh, and my world really was from the other end of the thing. So that was difficult because they didn't care for that much, to be honest. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I was gay and uh, not that, you know, what was gay about me was nothing. It's my imagination. There was nothing to do. I wasn't, you know, but um, I was gay and posh. I got, what I did was I um, was funny. I got, got funny and badly behaved. So I thought I've just got to be worse than the toughest kid here. It's the only way I'm going to get through this alive. 
So I did. And I was so bad that I was endlessly suspended, threatened with exposure. They never quite expelled me. But there were, I used to do not turn up. I mean, I literally didn't go. Um, months would pass and I wouldn't attend school. I was a master at forging notes, hiding. I didn't go to any exams. I left with three GCSEs. There were two times in my life I have feared for my physical safety where I've literally thought I was going to die. Once is when I accidentally stumbled into a brothel in Sao Paulo. And the second time was when my mother got my exam results. And I honestly believe she would have torn me limb from them. I had, they had to, I had to literally barricade the door. She was going to take my head off. Because I just didn't go to school, didn't go, didn't right. do anything. And when I did go, I was so disruptive. I had, a, I had a, an appointed, uh, like a, a kind of child, you know, what's wrong with this kid? person that would come to the school and talk to me all kinds of things I mean I was terrible terrible behavior that's how I got through it really um you know looking back on it with the hindsight of um a more sensitive eye I I, I was acting out a lot of stuff I'd say right. <laughs> it was you know I got some things going on there but um but yeah that was the way through it the way through it for me was to be as badly behaved as possible. And I hated school. And I, all I wanted to do was join a circus. And I know that's a bit of a cliche, but it was a genuine like desire of mine. And I would do presentations to my parents where I would, my mum's got this, all this stuff, where I would literally write out the reasons why I should be allowed to go and join and live amongst circus people. <laughs> that was my desperate need. Um, what, was there a specific act that you wanted to be performing in the circus or did you see yourself I'm as more of the, the like the a clerical guy? <laughs> the guy that puts up the big tent. Yeah. No, I, I saw, well, I really did think the trapeze would be for me. Um, but what I kept saying to my, this is what I kept saying to my parents is the clock is ticking. Why don't you people <laughs> understand? You can't, if you're like, if you're 70, I'm too late. Like I've got to go now. I'm 12. This is the time They will mold me. And I could say, you know, anything, not a clown, but, you know, standing on the back of a horse, feathers sure. in my hair. Again, know. jock, something athletic. <laughs> um, exactly, exactly. That, the, that uh, boy you were dating when you came out, did that yeah. end up being a significant relationship? How long did it last? Yeah, it did, actually. Uh, he was my first sort of serious boyfriend. About three years. He was much, he was older than me. He was oh. 10 years older than me. Oh. Um, yeah. And that was, um, it was an important thing, really, important time. I often think about how, it's an interesting thing about, about young gay people. I worry about this a bit because we, I don't, I don't, I don't want to sound like that old gay man, but uh, when I was in my 20s and my teens, you know, gay bars, there were so many. And there was so much diversity in them so that you got to, you met older people all the time. And it was a really important thing, I think, in making you a rounded queer. Um, uh, but I was always kind of attracted then to older people. I just kind of, I didn't, I, I think I wanted, you know, a bit like joining the circus. I, I didn't, wasn't interested in my own age group. I wanted something high flying. Uh, so I was in a relationship with him. Um, and it was a relationship I didn't really know how to leave because I was 20, 21. Um, yeah. So I didn't leave it terribly well. Um, 
unfortunately I regret that but there it is yeah um yeah do you remember your first uh gay bar or pub or club yeah oh yeah now in now Lee returns to the story my friend Lee gay Lee so we used to stay in my parents in this flat in London here in in Grosvenor in uh, Grosvenor Road which is Pimlico and Lee and I had read so we were both so we're out to each other but not out to our parents and uh, we had met uh, in Berlin actually let's not get into all that years before a couple of years before and he lived in Croydon so and so this was like to me the absolute epitome of cool Croydon is like you know uh, a, a suburb of London really but because of that he was always going up to London he was always going to see bands he had orange hair he had black drainpipe trousers and a biker jacket you know, and, he, and he smoked he was cool anyway we decided with each other we were going to go to a gay bar and um, it was cool. The one we'd heard of was, uh, was called The White Swan. I hope it's still there. I don't know if it is. It's on, in the commercial road. It's way over the other side of London, East End. And um, we got this, uh, we got Time Out, which is how you found these things. And the address of The White Swan was, you know, 109 to 119 Commercial Road. So we decided, we hailed a black cab. I mean, which is the most ridiculous thing. I've, you know, I don't, can't think, apart from that, it was so expensive. But anyway, we get a black cab to take us there. And I can't say, none of us can say the white swan because it's immediately the cab drive boot bloke's going to go, your pansies. So uh, we, I said, um, <clears throat> 109 to 119 Commercial Road, please, driver. And he went, <laughs> well, get in. He went, where is it? What is it? 100 what to what? In the commercial Road? He said, do you know how long the commercial road is? I said, yes, it's 109. Just let's mm-hmm. find 109. He was like, fucking hell. He went, well, what is it? What is it? Is it a, you know, is it a west one? Is it? I said, it's 109. Anyway, we're driving along. This is getting more and more stressful. He goes, is it, a, is it a warehouse? Is it a shop? So anyway, we finally see it. And I say, I think it's, Lee won't speak, by the way. This is typical of Lee. He was all talk. Then we get down to it, not a word from him, like literally hiding. Uh, and then we get to the, there it is, you can see it. And I said, oh, I think it's here on the right. He went, the white swan? Why didn't you tell me? The white swan? So anyway, in we went. <laughs> and we got into the white swan. And I'll never forget it. I'll never forget the feeling. We walked in and there was that thing that you used to feel, which was, you, you'd say, you'd look around, you'd go, are all these people gay? Like, can all these people be gay? It didn't feel like that was possible, especially if you grew up as I did in Dartmouth, where, you know, there was one, maybe two elderly queens, wonderful creatures, but, you know, not a lot else. And suddenly this massive place just full of gays. And there was a guy with red hair. I've always liked a redhead. There was a guy with red hair, no shirt on, uh, and army camo trousers, and he was dancing on the bar. And I was kind of staring, I was staring at him. And I remember I could feel my heartbeat in the soles of my feet. It was like literally going through my whole body. And uh, we, I looked at this guy and he winked at me. And uh, I was like, this is unbelievable. This is, I mean, it ends here. It's the best thing that's ever happened in my life. I was probably about 20, I think. Um, yeah, and that was, we used to go there a lot then after that, the white swap one. And every neighbourhood, you see, that's the thing in London, every neighbourhood had a, had a bar or, or several. Now there's, you know, there's very few left and they're all concentrated in the centre or in the east, really. 
but in the old days, like every neighborhood and every each kind of bar had a type of person and that's what you did and you kind of moved around those places. And they've all gone now. It's very sad. I mean, I literally lived in a bar in Islington called the King Edward VI and it, it, the Eddie, we called it. And it was, uh, I mean, I just was in there every night with my posse and friends and all, you know, Wobbly Brian, the DJ. And it was a fantastic time, you know. It was wild and interesting, you know, and, and you, you learn a lot as well. And this is in the days of, you know, of people will remember HIV and AIDS as a really terrifying scourge. And that's where you got all your information. You got condoms and lube and people would say, do this and don't do that. And, you know, it was, it was useful. It was a real nice. resource, I think. And King Ed- Edward VI, as we know from yeah. this annotated yeah. version, Kings and Queens. Yeah, well, he, big old G. Actually, poor King Edward VI died at 15. So I don't know if we can really categorize him. But anyway, that's what it was called. And whatever that was about, I can't tell you. <laughs> poor old Eddie. S- Stephen, thank you so much for spending your magic hour with us. Thank you. Shake those pleasure. martinis. Yeah, it's time to do that now. It's six o'clock. It's time to do that. Get it done, Stephen. And yeah. I cannot wait to see you, whether it be in London or Los Angeles. I'll be back. I'll be back or soon. ideally at the Royal Vauxhall Tavern uh, on the dance yes. floor. Yes, that's where it happens. That's and you, and you, Matt, please. Of I'll have course. you here too. I will Absolutely. be there. All of you, all of the listeners, come to yes. the Vauxhall Tavern with the- me. Global queer audience, you're all welcome. Stephen, you're all invited. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Thank you, Stephen. So good to see you. Well, Matt, we've come to the end of another episode. Dave, 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 Dave. Thank you for being here with me, giving me a reason to live. Thank you, Matt. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Thank you for reviewing us on Apple Podcasts with five stars only, of course. Thank you to Renee Colvert with a T, mm-hmm. our, our producer. Thank you to Ryan Connor, our engineer. Thank you to everybody at Earwolf. Uh-huh. Thank um, you, Ben Wise, for the music. Yes. And thank you, listener, for listening. Uh, tell a friend. Leave a review. We love you. We love you.